0: If you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Revelation. If you're visiting this morning, maybe you don't even have a Bible yet. If you don't, you are welcome to take the one in the pew. Those can be replaced. It's important that we have the word of God. And we are this morning in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. As you turn there, I'll say a word about this evening. You're probably aware of the fact there are many churches these days that have multiple services But there are comparatively few churches that have multiple distinct services. And our church maintains a tradition that was taken up during the Reformation from the early church. One of having two distinct, a morning and evening service, in order to round out the spiritual diet of God's people. Often one will be catechetical, it moves through the major doctrines of the faith in an orderly way. The other one will go through a book of the Bible. It's not always identical to that, but that's usually what's happening. It balances out the diet of the church. It's also a big part of how we hallow the Lord's day and spend time ministering to one another. This evening, we're going to break from Second Samuel. We've been working through that book. We'll come back to it. But we're going to break for a little while to spend a number of weeks looking at some of the parables of Jesus and understanding what their purpose is. What does the Lord do through them that makes them distinct? But This morning, we're also going to take a break. For four or five months now, we've worked through the doctrines that we confess as they are laid out in the Heidelberg Catechism. This morning, we're going to break for a month or two. Now, the last point we were at, we were looking at Lord's Day 21. We were looking at the doctrine of the church. And I mentioned at that time that there are many different metaphors contained in the Bible that help us to understand the church. Who are the people of God? How do we relate to them? How do they relate to the world? And we looked at the church as the flock of the Lord. This morning, we're going to turn to another one of those metaphors, because for two months, we're going to look at these different pictures, ways that we picture the people of the Lord. And this morning, it is the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. I wonder if some of you children have heard that before, that the church is the bride of Christ. Well, this morning, we learn why we say that. Why do we believe that? Here together with me, the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 6 of Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of God let's ask the Lord's blessing upon these true words Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking such wonderful things to us. What joy the people of the Lord, what thrill they will feel on that day when they hear the great shout of a multitude no one can number, praising you. We ask that you would cause by your Holy Spirit some of that joy to penetrate our hearts this very morning as you show us from your word who we are, how we are called to live. We ask these things for your glory, trusting in your spirit through our Savior Christ, for in his name we pray. Amen. Where did the book of Revelation get its name from? It gets the name from the very first verse of the book, where it says that this is a revelation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ To John one of the apostles and the word revelation means simply a revealing something which has been made clear which formerly was perhaps obscure or even unknown in the book of Revelation Jesus is revealing things for the people of God that we need to know it is a book that has at the very beginning the promise that everyone who reads these words will be blessed by them now what does he reveal in this book He does not only reveal events that were to come, which are being fulfilled, but he also reveals the perspective from which God sees these realities. That is very important. Revelation gives you corrective lenses. It helps you put on the glasses to see things the way that God sees them because the world teaches us to look very, very differently upon things. For instance, by and large, how does the world regard the whole panoply, the big group of various religions and belief systems? In general, even if people don't personally believe in this or that religion, the idea is that they are beautiful, respectable, pure in their own way. But In the book of Revelation, we get a very different image from Christ. In fact, our very chapter in verse 2, where Jesus personifies any religion or belief system that is opposed to the true gospel and to true submission to him. He says in verse 2 that they are to be seen as, quote, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And if we have any idea of the tendencies both outwardly and spiritually of false religion, we see that this is not too hard of a claim. Even so, the world teaches us at times to look upon the people of God as undesirable, as ugly, as worthless. That those who hold fast to Jesus Christ alone for salvation and as their highest authority, these are the offscourings; They are to be scorned. But what you see in the book of Revelation is a very different impression. Christ looks upon his people as his bride. And that means that if you are a believer, he looks upon you in a certain way that that metaphor has to give you some richer understanding and appreciation for. And in turn, the Holy Spirit this morning is teaching you, again, perhaps reminding you, look upon the people of God as a beloved, as a beautiful bride. And in turn, that means that we are to respond in a specific way to Christ, who is the bridegroom. As we consider the church as the bride of Christ, we're going to look at a number of passages, but under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them, but basically it's this. First, we're going to look at what this says about the bridegroom. What does this metaphor tell you about your Savior, about your Lord? And secondly, we're going to look at what it says about the bride, about the church as a people. But then third, what does this say about how you relate to the church? Because there's more to this metaphor. There's also the phrase that occurs throughout the scripture, friends of the bridegroom. Believers are part of the bride, but they are also friends of the bridegroom. They have a certain way they should behave towards Christ, knowing that he loves his church. So these are the things that we consider this morning, beginning with that first point I mentioned, the first major heading. What does this reveal to us about Christ? If he is the bridegroom, then the Holy Spirit declares to you this morning from his word that he has a distinct care for a distinct people. He has a distinct care for a distinct people, and he wants that to sink into you when you consider how he relates to you now. Now, imagine for a moment a doctor, and this doctor is a man who is engaged, and in his course of work of nature, he's going to care for a number of different people, probably quite a few of them women. It's totally appropriate for that doctor to show care to different women, but it would be inappropriate now as an engaged man in particular for him to show the same care an identical love to all women. How would he explain to his fiance otherwise if there was not a different way, a different degree, a different duration of love that he has for her from them? Even so, to say that Christ is the bridegroom means that while he may care for all kinds of people in the world, he has a distinct love for his bride. Scripture communicates that to us in a number of ways. Throughout the Bible, we find the people of God, not only individually, but corporately as a body, called the elect. The elect, literally the chosen. And when a man commits to a woman, he has to make a choice. And the Lord has made a choice to have a distinct people. Ephesians 1 verse 4, for instance, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we have to appreciate for a moment, we can't put our heads in the sand. We have to appreciate that through much of history, even to this present day in some places, the people getting married often had very little involvement in that choice. Maybe they had a certain amount of veto power. Typically, it was the father who made arrangements on behalf of his son about whom he would marry. And in this passage, we see very much the father has given to his son a people from eternity, as it says, from the foundation of the world. And then he sends forth the Holy Spirit in time to bring this together. Now we rejoice, Christ likes the selection According to grace. But the father has purposed for himself a distinct people. Pledged to the son. And on what basis? Even as I said, it's according to grace. Not according to her natural good looks, so to speak. The Lord did not look from the past into the future as though he's back there and not beyond time and space. He didn't look into the future and see who would have the right kinds of qualities, who would be beautiful, so to speak, by nature. In fact, the church, if anything, improves with her aging because he gives her everything that she has. Revelation verse 7 of chapter 19, look at me there. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The world expects very often love on different terms than the love that Christ has towards his people. It has to do with making a choice from eternity to be gracious. Because if he looked ahead to find good, he would not have, he'd be a bachelor still. If he looked for natural spiritual purity... He would see only nakedness and ugliness. It was granted to her to be clothed, to be adorned in beauty. And there's a picture of this in Genesis. In Genesis 16, Abraham, who in many ways symbolizes the father by God's providence, sends forth his servant Eliezer, going forth like the Holy Spirit, to get a bride for his son Isaac. And she's selected by the most uncanny of processes. You can read about it there in Genesis 16. But upon choosing her, which she willingly receives as a picture of the church, then this servant Eliezer presents certain gifts and garments to her. Signs of her being betrothed. He gives her what makes her so beautiful. And even so, Christ has a distinct love for his people. And it's reflected in many different ways. In fact, turn with me and look at Ephesians chapter 5. Here in this passage, the apostle is teaching different members of the church how they are to live in light of Christ. And he says, Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it's speaking about his willingness to die for her and then to serve her in his resurrection, Often in cultures, women would bring a dowry, a certain amount of money or property, into the marriage. In the case of Christ and the church, we were poor. And he gives the most valuable thing. He's willing to lay down his life. God himself takes our flesh to bear our burden, to redeem us from danger. And that sets the status for how husbands are then to relate to their wives. Tall order. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He accepts her in her fallenness, in her filth, in her blemishes, and then proceeds to cleanse and transform her. This is the way that Christ relates to his church being the bridegroom. And the scriptures tell us, for instance, in Revelation, that he desires to crown her above the angels. That is you. We're not talking about some other people, a hypothetical church. It is the very individuals who believed on Christ, whom he will place as the queen above all other creatures. And for how long, he's not like some king who tires of his wife and says, get me a different one. He desires everlasting union and intimacy with his people, of which the earthly counterpart was only a picture. How many people spend their whole lives seeking the idol of human intimacy? Not understanding it was only a faint shadow, the tiniest picture and taste of the reality which is in Christ for those who trust him. Revelation 21 verse 3 John says, I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The context there is of the bride appearing on that wedding day. He sees the church coming down from heaven like a bride adorned, and what does it say? God will dwell with them. This is why husbands and wives live together at the end of the day. It's not cost-saving. It's because we are imaging the desire of Jesus Christ, according to the gospel, to dwell graciously with his chosen people forever. And so the Lord has a distinct love for a distinct people. What about us, though? What about the church? What does this metaphor say for you? And this brings us to our second main heading, as we consider what it means to be called the Bride. This means that we in turn have a distinct devotion to our betrothed, a distinct devotion. I imagine quite a few of you have some familiarity with what is involved for most women on their wedding day in terms of getting ready. You've probably been there, many of you, and I can say that I have been there too because I think many of you know for 10 years I was a wedding photographer. And so I was literally present for dozens and dozens of instances where women in, you know, different cultures, different backgrounds, different individuals, and yet there's a commonality in terms of the sometimes anxiety, the focus on readying oneself to be in the presence of the groom. Sometimes that process begins hours earlier. There was one wedding uh, at the Sarah Lee headquarters I was at, and it was... uh, a couple, the woman, asked me if I could show up to begin taking photos at 4 a.m. The wedding was at 4 p.m. She needed almost the whole time. But the reason was because she was from India, and in their culture, they adorned the entire body with henna. All these dots and lines and things, and it takes hours Even so, the church has for a much longer time and with greater focus and love been readying herself. As it says in verse 7, the bride has made herself ready. Now, obviously, sometimes a part of that readying among human beings is polluted in its motivations. Part of it comes from, perhaps, insecurity, not being fully confident that you are counted beloved. And then part of it may be vanity, wanting to be seen by the guests at the wedding. But ideally, what should it come from? And I say this in part to those who may be getting married soon. What should it come from? This mutual adornment, because the groom does the same thing, should be one of a generous spirit of self-giving where you desire to please the sensibilities, to delight the sensibilities of your beloved. It's for their sake. And even so, Revelation 19, or Revelation 21, verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so I put it to you as a question Are you adorning yourself as a member of the church? Are you adorning yourself for Christ? Do you have an eagerness, a bride like eagerness? to put on the jewels, to be dressed in white. Now, you could ask, what exactly delights the sensibilities of Jesus? What does it mean to adorn ourselves? And I'll tell you, it's not like human people, where much of what delights our sensibilities is tangible, is outward. Christ has a church, and the church is of many tribes, tongues, and nations. You could add shapes and sizes. It's not our outward appearance that Christ delights in, but he delights in a person who is given over to devotion in terms of spiritual and moral faithfulness to him, who knows that they are already accepted in the beloved. That's their body, so to speak. But then they want to put on something additional, decorative, beautiful, and that is our lives of Christ-like godliness, Look at verse 7 again, Revelation 19. The bride has made herself ready. She didn't just sit around. She made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do not make the mistake, Protestant believer with whom I agree, Do not make the mistake of simply saying, well, she's clothed in the imputed righteousness, the credited righteousness of Christ's obedient life. That's true. We are justified through faith alone in Christ. But that is not what this verse is talking about. This verse is very much talking about something subsequent, sanctification, which Christ finds beautiful. And we are to desire... To put that on. And notice it's by grace. It says that it was granted to her. To clothe herself. But it is something we put on. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ daily. Compare for instance. 1 Timothy 2. I don't ask you to turn there. It's a brief passage. But listen carefully. The context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is describing. The dress code for a worship service. That can make us uncomfortable at times. What is the dress code? Because there are different ways you dress in different environments. And there he says, verse 9 women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, in a modest and self controlled way. For instance, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works there are occasions where it is appropriate to be especially dressed up and i would never tell a woman on her wedding day or the groom for that matter you should not be dressed up because right here it says the context is the worship service and the idea is that when we come into worship if we are attracted to if we admire anything in others it is whether or not they have the growing character of jesus christ And a person who can come among the people of God and be indifferent to genuine holiness and a life of service goes woefully underdressed into the presence of God's people and of Christ. He will have a bride who is dressed on that day. And yet it does come from his grace. Isaiah 61 verse 10, a prophecy Says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself, and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness. And praise to sprout up. That is such good news. That in this case. In this analogy. The bride didn't have to buy her dress. The groom looked at her. And he said. I'm giving you the best there is. And part of your sanctification. Is actually believing that. Believing that the Lord has things for you. In this coming year. In 2022. You're actually going to grow this year. And there can be putting on of beauty. And it's not just you individually, it's corporately. The church is a people, it's never an individual. And we should long and desire that this church, as a representative in this community, is dressed and ready for the groom. We don't know when we'll be with him. But that we would put him into a position to be delighted with what he sees. That brings us to our third, our final heading here. We've seen something of what it means for Christ to be the bridegroom, and we've seen something of what it means for us to be the bride. Let me ask you, though, what does it mean in terms of how you relate to the church? Not among the church, but to the church. For this, the analogy shifts a little bit. There's more to the metaphor. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist, who lives at the same time as Jesus, who up until Jesus' ministry is really the the public celebrity. He's the minister everybody would think of. He's asked whether or not he's basically jealous of the attention that Jesus is receiving now that Jesus has begun his public preaching ministry. John the Baptist, are you jealous that Jesus is getting all this attention? Are you jealous that your disciples are leaving you and going and following Jesus? His answer in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, my joy was in a sense incomplete until I saw Christ because what I wanted for the bride was for her to be with her bridegroom. In other words, John is saying, no, I am not jealous that I don't have the church's primary affection. That belongs to Christ. No, I am not jealous that the church doesn't submit to me finally. He is her head. No, I am not jealous that I am not the object of her trust. He is her provider. And so likewise, we are called to be good friends of the bridegroom. It's one thing to reap the benefits of being the bride. It's another thing to ask, how do I treat her? And I say it especially to those who are officers or will be officers in this church. That we mind our friendship to the bridegroom, that we not ask things of the bride that are inappropriate, that we know that we'll give an account to Christ for how we treated her, whether we are domineering, selfish, whether we wanted to be the Savior, we're just the wedding party, but we rejoice for Christ. He must increase, we must decrease, and so we are to be good friends to the bride, by way of conclusion, I just have a few questions for you. The first question is this. Ask yourself before the Lord, how have you been looking upon the church? I won't just say this week. I'll say in general. Maybe the last year or two. When you think of the people of God, and I'm not talking about the invisible church because we don't relate to them directly. We relate to the visible church. We are here, we are now. When you think of the people of the Lord, all those who profess faith in him, would you see her as a bride? Do you think of her as those who are beloved of Christ, all of them, including the insignificant ones, including the ones who are particularly sinful, including the ones who are particularly ignorant? That if their faith is in Christ, Christ loves them. Or do you spend much time bad-mouthing the bride? Can you imagine being with the groom on the wedding day and the the men are getting dressed together and one of the groomsmen just starts to say hideous things about the bride to the groom or in his presence? There is a time and a place, I said this recently, there is a time and a place to acknowledge and to correct the faults of the church. But on the other hand, attitude is everything. And if we bear bitterness towards the people of God, we are not good friends to the bridegroom. We love her. We care for her. We seek to do all we can to protect her reputation and to improve it. Remember, of course, where her beauty ultimately comes from. We've seen already this morning. It comes from grace. It comes from a choice on God's part. If you can look at the people of God primarily that way, not for what they presently are, but for what they've been called to be, You will be able to find beauty even in a local church. And that's part of what keeps us from escaping more and more to an ethereal relationship with the church, to a virtual relationship with the church, which is not a relationship with the church. Christ has a body, not just a spirit, in order that we'd have a tangible relationship. Let me ask you a different question. Are you betrothed to Christ Children, that means are you in a lifelong commitment to him, the expectation that he is going to be your Lord and Savior forever? In this analogy, do you have the expectation that you are among the bride? There will be many on that day to whom he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And so you ask, while on the one hand we are saved by faith, in Christ alone. On the other hand, it bears evidence. You ask yourself, am I readying myself in the ways that we've seen? Perhaps even more tellingly, do you have an excitement to be with Christ? Is he the one you're looking forward to? David said, "Whom have I have but you, O Lord? There's nothing I desire beside you." Do you desire Christ? And the way to desire him is more and more to discover who he truly is. If he seems undesirable, it's because you don't understand who he is. If you have not yet been betrothed to him, do not wait. Our very text speaks of those who are invited. But then Revelation 22, verse 17, the way that the Bible closes, because this is one of the major metaphors of Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 17, the Bible closes... With the words, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You don't have to pay anything. Coming is believing. It's believing upon the promise that Christ receives all who desire salvation in him by grace. We trust him. In this analogy, we might say he extends his hand of marriage, and we say, I do. But we know that it's purely of grace. If you have not believed, believe and then have the assurance he is faithful. Now, if you have believed on him, I have only this to say. It's an encouragement, an exhortation. Cherish the distinctiveness of his love for you. Do not forget that it is different than the love he may show, the care that he may show towards the world at large. It is a faithful love. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He rejoices over you. And for how long will he do that? You've heard it said, probably, always a bridesmaid, never the bride, The believer says the opposite. Always the bride. Always the bride. Because he will not cease to be faithful. Let's ask him to bless us even as we seek these things. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises given to us in Christ. We ask that you would please Help us to receive them more and more and to savor the love that he has for us, even to lay down his life for us. We ask, Lord, that you would please add to the number of those who are saved, that they would be able to rejoice with us as we see your people come together. We pray, Father, that you would please help us to be good friends to the bridegroom, to take seriously our responsibilities and what is entrusted to us, Lord, we ask that you would please help us to dress ourselves in the righteousness which Christ has merited for us by the Holy Spirit. We ask all of these things for his glory, for the good of your people in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.